0: This is Truth Encounter, and our study of Deuteronomy takes us today to chapter 26, where we met an old Israelite worshiper who brought to the temple in Jerusalem a basket filled with some simple things from his fields. But as he worshipped before the Lord and reviewed the history of God's faithfulness to his people in the Old Testament, we were reminded to review our own history of salvation. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he challenges us to look back at our past to get courage to face the future. Dave? God has promised you that if you proclaim the good news, if you proclaim the gospel, that it's going to be like a powerful seed. In fact, the Lord Jesus used the illustration again and again and again, that the planting of the gospel is like planting a seed in the ground. And some of the seed, you know, some of the good news that you share is going to fall on ground where it's hard and it's stony and it doesn't doesn't penetrate at all. It's just taken away by Satan, just like that. Some of you are going to plant other seed and a person is going to really respond. They're going to be all excited about it. And they're going to be with you, maybe doing some discipleship with you for a few weeks. And they're going to be really turned on for this thing called Jesus Christ. And then it's going to be gone. And they're going to fall back and be just even worse than they were before. It tells us they're going to be another group that they're going to go on for quite a long period, but then this life, this present life is going to get them down. It's going to discourage them. It's going to hurt them. And they're going to wander away from the faith because they worry too much about just living in the here and now. But then he tells us about a fourth kind of ground, the very final ground, that's going to be a a good ground. and You're going to plant the seed, and the seed's going to explode in people's lives, and they're going to do things that you could never imagine, and they're going to produce a crop that goes on a hundredfold, a thousandfold, ten thousandfold. You see, under the new covenant, it's not just the multiplication of stuff in a basket like Bread. What it is, it's the multiplication. You are challenged to be sold out to Jesus, completely sold out to him. Why should you do that? Because you need to decide if you believe that he's really the answer. If you believe that he can really deliver someone from slavery to sin. He can really deliver them from immorality. He can deliver them from pride. He can deliver them from alcohol abuse. He can deliver them from anything that you might imagine, the slavery to sin. We have to decide whether we're going to really believe that. And then we need, to, we need to commit ourselves to building our lives on that. If you're thinking, well, you know, I think that might kind of be a nice thing to add to my life and, and it brings some fulfillment to me, that's not going to work. You know what will change your life if you begin to think of, you know, I really believe, Jesus is the answer. I believe that if I present the gospel to people's lives, in fact, even as I do it, Like when I get ready to come on a Wednesday night and I know for sure that I'm going to present the gospel to the kids that night in the council time, I know for sure that it's going to be one of the worst days at work. I'm going to be incredibly tired. There's going to be tremendous emotional pressure against me not to go. But I'm going to do it anyway. Because I believe it's the truth. I believe kids really need to hear about Jesus. And I believe it will really change their lives. If you start to think like that, you know what? This Christianity thing will explode in your life. You see, Christianity doesn't work as long as you just sit there. And you can argue about it. You can debate about it. You're going to get burned out on church. You're going to get burned out on your relationship with other believers. What you've got to radically commit yourself to is, do I believe the promise of God? Well, I believe if God promises that this seed will reach some good ground and it will explode, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to commit myself to it. I don't care how I feel. I don't care how tired I am. I'm just going to do it. And I guarantee you, if you'll make that kind of a commitment, if you'll believe, if God promises that his word will not return to him void, then it'll explode on you. And you'll, you'll enter into a life like there will be incredibly down times. There will be times when you're sick, when you don't feel like doing it at all. But there will also be incredibly powerful times and up times and joyous times. That's what life has become for Mary and myself. When we were young, we just made a commitment. You know, We were raised with this stuff, but in our young married life, we had to decide, would we believe God's promises that he could turn a wandering and slave sinner into someone that that had found life in Jesus? And was it the truth? And we decided, yeah, we're going to believe that really is the truth, that this man called Jesus really could deliver people from their sin, that he really was alive. And we were going to believe that that wasn't just one of the religions, it was the truth, the way, the life. We tro- chose to build our lives on that. We came here to Midlothian, Just eight, eight small families gathered, not even eight families, about eight people or so, just sitting in a circle. And here I was from New York. You know, I, was, I was from a, a foreign country to Texas. And from a human standpoint, it was impossible that anything would happen. You don't bring a Yankee into a rural Texas town and, and, and try to start a new church. That's stupid. But if it's the truth, God promises that His Word is going to do something. There was a group of people that were hungry to hear the truth of God's Word presented. The pages of the Bible opened up and discussed. There was a group of people that had been praying that that would take place. And that's why we're here today. Has God done anything with that seed? In other words, God made Jacob this miserable, wandering, ailing, sick old man that didn't have a chance of becoming a great nation. He's become a great nation. The Jewish people have been on the news all this week. And there's, there's millions of Jews that live right here in the United States. That's just an objective truth. The New Testament challenge is, well, we believe that same promise spiritually. And what I'm scared of, you see, something that we need to be really careful of, we can start to look back at God's fulfillment of his promise in the past, the issue of will we believe his promise for the future. And some of you are saying, well, I remember the great old age when I met with a group of men and, and I, I, I met with a group of ladies and we really praised God for, for what he did. But you've kind of gotten away from that and you're all thinking about the past. The issue of this chapter, that's why the Lord made these guys come three times a year. They were to declare today, today I still believe. it. Today, I remember what God did for me in the past. You see, that's where the fuel for this thing needs to come. You don't get motivated. See, so many of you get motivated by a religionist that's saying, man, you need to make this religion happen. You need to make this church go. You need to make this thing really move. And it's all pride. And that's going to kill you. It's going to put a load of guilt on your life. What well, I want you to realize, what the Old Testament and what, in, what the New Testament shouts at us, is you got to make a commitment to the truth. And then you remember how that truth has produced great blessing in the past. And you take some regular times to do that publicly and to confess it together, and that becomes a tremendous impetus to keep going into the future. And I believe that God is beginning to do some incredibly exciting, explosive things in the United States of America. All over, this, all over the country, there's men that are getting up early in the morning and they're praying. I was with a man up in Michigan. He just recently got married. And his background's incredible. As a young man, he got married back in high school, kind of one of those quick romances. She was unfaithful to him. He you know, even found her in an illicit relationship. So he, that marriage dissolved. Then he got married to someone else. And in just a few weeks, she died. So here's a young guy. He's just barely starting in life. He's been divorced once, and now he's a widower. You know, what can God do with that? And the girl that was sitting next to him at the table, she was raised in a really strong, good Christian home. She married a guy that from the day she was married to him, he wouldn't work a lick, hardly worked at all. A day before her baby was born, or two or three days before her baby was born, he left her, just walked out of the house. He's been gone. He's been gone ever since. And divorced her, and shacked up with several other women, just living immorally. And here are two young people, just barely getting started in life, and it looks like life has just ended for them already. And yet they told us how the Lord brought them together, and they just recently got married, and they told us their story because they had all these kids, and we had to explain, you know, how you could just get married a couple days ago, and now you got all these kids. But you know, this young man's eyes just came alive, not only talking about his new marriage, but you know what he described? He said, in their church family, a group of men meet every month with their pastor. And their pastor shares with them some of the needs of his life, some of the needs of the community, some of the needs of the ministry, some of the the temptations that might be there. And this group covets to pray for their pastor. And then on Sunday morning, on Sunday morning while their pastor's preaching, they take turns. They have it all divided up so that you hardly ever need to miss church. But they've got so many men involved in this that it's just once every so many months. But a group of men while the preacher's preaching, there's another group that's praying through the whole teaching hour. And those men pray specifically. There's an unbelieving husband whose wife invited them to come to church today. Lord, speak to that man today. Touch that man's life. There's someone that just became a widow and and they're grieving intensely. Lord, use today's message to do something to bring strength into their life. And this young man, he said, you know, he said, I just can't tell you, Dave, what that has done in my life. Just to stop and pray for like an hour straight with another man. The Spirit of God has come upon that group. And that's what God is doing in the United States. And God wants to do that right here, too. The way that you get into that, the way that you begin to participate in that, is you remember, you look back at what God has done for you in the past. That's what this Israelite is doing. You look back at what's in the past. And then you get courage to look at what might be in the future. He says, God made us into a powerful, mighty nation. That was impossible from a human standpoint, but God did it because of his grace. But then he talks about after they became a powerful, hard nation. Was it easy street? No. That's when they became enslaved. It says, but the Egyptians mistreated us, in verse 6. They made us suffer. They put us to hard labor. And it says that they cried out to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And the Lord heard their voice. And he saw our misery, our toil, our oppression. In other words, when they became a mighty nation, remember then the Egyptians became jealous of them. The Egyptians began to put them into forced labor camps and, and that's when they, when they became slaves. And in that slavery, the people cried out. The book of Exodus begins with God saying, I have heard the cries of my people. And he raises up Moses, the great deliverer. And then it says that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. The old, te- the old covenant began with an incredible powerful demonstration of god's power and it was the egyptian plagues as you move into the inauguration of the new testament covenant when jesus initiated the covenant at the last supper he says take and drink of the blood of the covenant and then when he died on the cross and then when he rose again for our sins remember at pentecost 50 days after that the spirit of god came upon those original disciples And God did the same thing to initiate the new covenant that he did to initiate the old covenant. He enabled the founding fathers of this new covenant, men like Peter, men like James, men like John, men like James, the Lord's brother. He enabled them to do signs and wonders, to do great, miraculous things, just like Jesus Christ had done in the Gospels. Now why did God enable them to do that? Because that, that demonstration, those signs and wonders were not something that every believer could expect to do because they were inaugurating, identifying signs. Like not every Israelite did what Moses did. Not every Israelite was able to, to deliver through the Red Sea. Not every Israelite was able to, you know, to cause the river to become blood. But as God inaugurated both the Old Testament covenant and as he inaugurated the New Testament covenant, signs and wonders, which were direct demonstrations from heaven, that God had directly ordained this new covenant. In the Old Covenant and New Covenant, God did that. And the Israelites would remember that. And we need to remember as we go back and we think about, well, what's the credentials of our faith? How do we know that it's true? Well, that basically goes back to the great sign and wonder that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And then our whole movement started, our whole movement started with a group of founding apostles who did the same kind of signs and wonders as the Lord Jesus himself. And in the, in, the, in the scripture, the ability to do signs and wonders is always connected with revelation. It's always connected with new revelation. That's why I think we need to be very careful today, because there's many people that are saying that I can do the signs and wonders. There's a movement across our, our country today. The Signed and Wonders movement. And men are saying today, and women are saying today, that I'm, I'm an apostle, I'm a new prophet. I think there's great danger in that. Because I think that the Lord has ordained a new covenant. He has founded a new covenant. We have the foundation of all that we need right here in Scripture. But there's always a hunger in a human heart to have new revelation, and to, ha- to not have to study this book, to not have to read it, to not have to remember what God's done in the past. It would be a lot easier for me to get up on a Sunday morning and not have to study this week. To not have to read what it said in the Hebrew text. To not have to figure out what a wandering Aramean meant. To not have to try to recreate this history for you. It would be a lot easier for me just to stand up here and kind of put my my hand on my forehead and say, I've got a new revelation for you. And then just let it rip. And give you my own thoughts. But that becomes Manipulative instead of you confronting God through the power of the Spirit in His holy word that I know is authoritative, that I know will give you life, you start to rely upon my word, which is not going to be holy, which can easily become abusive. And as Mary and I have traveled, we've talked with one group of believers after another who have fallen under abusive spiritual authority. And almost every time it's because instead of reading this book, instead of studying on their own, instead of being able to hear God's voice in every word of Scripture, instead of building their faith on the clear revelation of the Bible, they start to build their faith on the church that they're in. And an authoritative figure or authoritative figures in that book. Mary and I talked with one young married couple that, that the teacher even began to tell them they needed to swap their marriage partners, that they were married to the wrong person. He had a revelation that this person was married should be married to this person here, and they'd swap marriage partners. Really weird stuff. He would tell them the Lord gave him a revelation this week that they needed to give all of their savings to this particular project. They talked about you know, how this was a group that was very sincere when they gathered together for worship they, they really wanted to do the right thing, and they, they wanted to love Christ, but it became abused. Why? Because they started to follow a spiritual leader that was demonstrating their authority through signs and wonders that they were doing instead of the old covenant and the new covenant that's revealed in this book. I want you to know that I believe with all my heart that God's power is just as active today in working in the world as he was in the first century. I believe that God is just as active as we're teaching the Word of God today as He was at Pentecost. But He's not active today in giving me new revelation. He's not active today in enabling me to add to the Holy Scripture. The worry He's active is in your heart. He's able to take, like, as I'm doing what I'm doing, from a human standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're a people that can watch multi-million dollar productions. You can see drama anytime you want to. You can turn the TV and Sesame Street pours millions of dollars to captivate you. And McDonald's spends billions more to try to get you to buy hamburgers. And I'm sitting here talking to you. That's stupid. But God says through the foolishness of preaching, I'll change lives. And I believe that what happens is that the Holy Spirit enters in as we open up a book like Deuteronomy. We begin to think about what it meant back then. We begin to live in that situation. We open our hearts to the power of the Spirit. Then we begin by the Holy Spirit ministering in your heart. As you read the text, not depending upon me, but as you read the text, you're able to to have an understanding into what it means. And then the Holy Spirit begins to speak to you about some of the things He wants you to do in response to it today. And that's power. There's also power for healing. Right in our own church, We've seen the Lord touch different people's lives. But it's not because we have have an apostle among us that can give a piece of clothing and a person's heel. It's because you as the body of Christ can pray and can touch base with your Savior and know that he'll give you glimpses of his kingdom. There's tremendous power here. When we pray for marriages to heal, for people to be able to overcome those attacks of the evil one. There's tremendous power here and I want you to believe that. I want you to know it because that's what changes our worship from just a dry ritual into the real thing. And this, this Israelite can remember the days of the Exodus when great signs and wonders took place and they would look back at those days and they would affirm their faith based upon the credentials and the authenticating ministry of God in establishing that kingdom, that covenant. We can look back to the founding of our movement in the first century And we can see those same authenticating signs. And we can rejoice that our our faith has been given credence. And then we can seek to have the power of the Holy Spirit move into our life today. That was the meaning of the signs and wonders. And he says this. He goes on with his his proclamation. He brought us to this place and gave us, verse 9, He brought us to this place and He gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, verse 10, I bring the firstfruits of the soil that you, O oh Lord, have given to me. And then they place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. And you and the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things that the Lord your God has given to you in your household. The next paragraph talks how the third, every third year they would take this blessing, this tithe, and they would give it as a support for the poor in their land. They would give it for the support of those that were ministering the word of God in their towns. And then in verses 16 through 19, you can read it. It mentions the, the reaffirmation of their commitment to be obedient to the Lord. Notice it says in verse 16, The Lord your God commands you this day to follow His decrees, His laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in His ways and that you will keep His decrees and commands and laws and that you will obey Him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you are to keep all of his commandments. What are these people doing? They are publicly reaffirming who they belong to, who they're going to live for. I want you to think, what's God done for you in the past? What's in your basket? Obviously, it's not going to be, most of you aren't farmers, so it's probably not going to be honey. But I want you to think about what's in your basket. If I were to ask you this week, What are the tangible things that you've done this past week to express the fact that you believe that Jesus Christ has delivered you from sin? What would you say? That's what this text is getting into. What would Dave Wurtons say if someone says, Dave? I want concrete evidence this week in the actions of your life. What have you done? Not so that you could be a child of God. Not so that you could earn God's favor. Not so that you could be some super-religionist. That's not what I'm talking about at all day. What I want to know is, what's the concrete evidence in your life this week that you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, one of the things that I have in my bath is my checkbook. You know, the Bible talks more about money than it does about just about anything else. More about money than sex. More about money than, than about worship. So one of the things in, in my, in my basket is my checkbook. It's one of the things as an American believer that I can do. I think our checkbooks declare what we really believe. I think every one of your checkbooks are, are the most powerful insight into what your priorities are. And I want to share something with you. You know, in our own church family, we joke about it and stuff. But you know, one of the things the Lord taught me on this trip, you know one of the greatest privileges for us as believers, it's to give, it's to put money and invest it in the kingdom of God. I want to share a story with you. That the the uh, chairman of the board of Moody Bible Institute told me this story. We ate with him one night. And Paul said, Dave Amir, I want to tell you something about your dad. He said, my, your dad invited us to go to a campfire at Word of Life. And, my, and for my dad, that's a holy time. On Word of Life Island on Wednesday night, they have a campfire. And what they do is they have a real strong challenge for all the teenagers and everyone that's there to commit their life to the Lord. And kids down through the centuries, probably about 400 kids a week, have come forward at the end of that service and they have thrown a stick in the fire. And And the slogan would go like this. The more you throw that stick into the fire, the brighter the light will shine. And here it's dark around the campfire and the fire is burned down while the speaker spoke. But then you throw a stick into the fire. And across the United States, I can go to every country in the world and there will be a missionary on that field that made a commitment at that campfire. That's just the power of it. I know that's true. When I went to France, there were some missionaries at that conference I spoke at that threw a stick on a fire and says, Lord, my life is going to burn for you. My dad goes to the Philippines. There will be missionaries there. They were there because they threw that stick on the fire. So it's become a very special place in the traditions of Word of Life. Paul Johnson told me how my dad, they were eating over at the adult camp. We have a mile across the lake. He says, I'll meet, I'll meet you at, just before the campfire at 7.30. Pick you up in my speedboat. We'll go over. So he did. And Paul was with this other businessman who ate that meal with my dad and was going to go to the campfire. Well, it, it's about a quarter of a mile walk from the boathouse to where they have the campfire. The businessman began to share with Paul. He said, you know, Paul, he said, I want you to know something. That several years ago, Jack Wurtson called me up. At the time, I was a truck driver, a very powerful truck driver that had earned a lot of money and had a whole fleet of trucks and and they were prospering well. And Jack Wharton called me up and said that this island was available from the Clark Thread people and he needed $25,000 to buy this island. And could I help? And I sat down and I wrote a check. I took a checkbook out and I wrote a check to make Word of Life Island possible. And Paul didn't know exactly how much it was. It was a good hunk of that $25,000. And then they walked further into into the campfire and the service took place. And while all these kids walked forward and threw their stick on the fire, and then as they began to move away, they began singing, I have decided to follow Jesus and some other songs they would sing. The truck driver just sat there And Paul was there with him, and he could tell the guy was really moved. And Paul's a very successful businessman. Very much involved in financial, high finance, and all that kind of thing. And he could tell this this businessman was really touched. And so he sat beside me, just sat quietly, and suddenly the truck driver, turned. this guy that owned this trucking business, turned to him. He said, you know, this is all I've got left. This is all I've got left. He said, Paul, my wife and I came to Word of Life this week because Jack Wurtz invited us to come as a gift. We can't afford to come anymore. You see, my business crashed. I lost all my trucks. I have one truck left. And my wife and I go out in the road. We drive it together. And I couldn't even afford to come and spend a week at Word of Life Inn this week. But I came just as a gift. And he hung his head down and he said, Paul, this is all I've got left. And Paul put his arm around him and said, I would say you've got a lot left. And Paul looked at Mary and I and he said, you know, that's what it really means to be a businessman for Jesus Christ. It means that during those times of blessing, when your business is prospering and when it's growing, and even when it isn't, when we can do just little things, the Lord gives us the privilege. He says, "What's in your basket?" He says, "You can take and you can make investment." That truck driver made an investment during his time of prosperity. You think it was worth it? Yeah, I think it was.